Life is full of missed expectations. We have one thing in our mind, and reality gives us something different. Time and time again, what we think doesn't match up with what we get. And often we can't help but feel the pain and and the disappointment that comes with life not being what we thought it would be. So, So maybe you're here and you expected to get your dream job right out of college. You thought you'd be making six figures by now, but you're still living paycheck to paycheck. Or maybe you expected to meet the love of your life and be married by now. Perhaps you expected your kids to always respect and appreciate you for all that you do for them. Maybe you expected marriage to be easier than it's turned out to be. Or perhaps you simply expected that you feel closer to the Lord now than you did 5, 10, 15 years ago. You're trying to be faithful, but this idea, your idea of the good life seems to evade you. You feel like Your day-to-day is characterized by monotony or dryness. Life is full of missed expectations. This afternoon, as we pick up where we left off last week in the book of Haggai, we're going to see that this is no modern phenomenon. Even those who had firsthand seen that God work in such miraculous ways still needed the word of the Lord to encourage and give them hope to press on and persevere in the work that he had given to them. As we said last week, Haggai is composed of four words of the Lord or sermons from the prophet Haggai in his ministry to the people of Judah about 18 years after they returned from exile to Jerusalem. Remember that the book of Haggai is a book full of God renewing his promises to his people after they'd spent nearly 70 years in Babylonian captivity. We considered his first sermon in chapter 1 where we saw Haggai's rebuke of the people for their spiritual apathy and neglect of him as demonstrated in their failure to rebuild the temple. By God's grace, they were granted repentance in verses 12 through 15 of chapter 1 and the Lord spurs on their work and even assures them of his presence before the temple was finished. You saw that in verse 14. Chapter 2 then is composed of Haggai's remaining three sermons, the first of which is delivered to the people three weeks after his first sermon, which puts it on October 17th, 520 BC. And the last two are actually both given on the same day, two months after that, December 18th. We'll consider each of these in our time together this afternoon. So if you will open your Bibles with me to the book of Haggai, we will read all of chapter two together. It's the third to last book of the Old Testament. You can find it on page 791 if you're using one of the black hardback Bibles under the seats in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, that book is our gift to you. We would love for you to read it, to have it and read it, so that you might encounter God in his word. And the primary idea that we're going to see in our passage is this. Hope for endurance is found in God himself not our earthly circumstances. Hope for endurance is found in God himself, not our earthly circumstances. With that said, if you're able, please stand with me for the public reading of God's word. We're going to start 
at the very end of verse 15 in chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the month, in the, of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. And then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdom of nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. You can be seated. As I mentioned earlier... Our text is broken up into three parts, three sermons, each marked by the date on which they were given, and that phrase, the word of the Lord, came to Haggai. 
these three sermons will naturally serve as the framework of our sermon this afternoon. We're going to see a disenchanted people assured. That's verses one through nine. A disenchanted people assured. Then we're going to see a defiled people blessed. That's verses 10 through 19. A defiled people blessed. And lastly, we're going to see in 20 through 23, a Davidic people preserved. A Davidic people preserved. If I've learned nothing else in my past 10 months here at CBC, it's that you do not stand in this pulpit without an alliteration. That I have heard in the presence of many witnesses. Look with me at verses 1 through 9. Three weeks after Haggai's first sermon, the rebuilding of the temple was underway after nearly two decades of neglect. And yet the people had apparently grown somewhat discouraged or disappointed at the work of their hands. He says in verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? He essentially turns to the old timers, those in the congregation who were old enough to have seen Solomon's temple with their own eyes before the exile. They would have been in their late 70s or older. And Haggai essentially acknowledges this doesn't quite measure up to what it was in its heyday, does it? We can become disenchanted or disillusioned when things don't live up to our expectations and Judah was no different. Just think back to the dedication of Solomon's temple in 2 Chronicles 7. It had the Ark of the Covenant within its walls. There were 22,000 oxen, 122,000 sheep to be offered. And do you remember what happened as soon as Solomon finished praying? 2 Chronicles 7.1, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. I mean, this must have been a sight to see, Right? And so for those, of, for those who had been old enough to have seen this, who wouldn't have desired that the magnificence of Solomon's temple be restored? As the renowned theologian Andy Bernard says, I wish there was a way to know that you were in the glory days before you left them. And the second temple doesn't appear to be living up to the people's expectations. Haggai speaks on behalf of the Lord, again, not to bring a word of rebuke like last time, which we saw in chapter 1, but to bring a word of assurance. He encourages them in verse 4 to be strong. He says it to each of them, be strong. You kidding me? You want me to be strong? This temple doesn't hold a candle to what came before it. And you want me to be strong? You can't be serious. But keep looking at verse 4, where he moves from reflection on the past to imperatives for the future. He says, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. So fear not. This work was to be in God's strength, not their own. He says, in effect, hey, you remember what I did in the Exodus? Remember how I rescued your ancestors from captivity? You remember how I parted the seas and crushed the Egyptians? You remember the covenant that I made with them? Same God, same spirit, same people, same covenant. That's the foundation upon which God's call to work 
rests. Remember back in chapter 1, 12 through 14, we're told that the people feared the Lord as they were right to do. They were in rebellion and under God's judgment because of it, and they responded in fear and trembling. But now in light of this assurance that his spirit dwells among them, under the same covenant that he had made with their ancestors, what did he say? He says, fear not. There is a kind of fear in the human heart that hinders our obedience to God, isn't there? It often stems from a wrong view of God's posture towards those who are in Christ. A wrong view of God will always lead to a wrong view of his law and his desire for us to walk in accordance with it. But we see here, when we consider God's faithfulness as demonstrated in his wondrous works, this kind of fear simply doesn't belong in the Christian life. I wonder, what tempts you to fear? What circumstances cause you to doubt God's presence and preservation? We all have them from time to time. When I open the news and I look at the state of our schools, our government, our culture, our country, or even, even the church at large, I can't help but feel this heaviness. What am I going to do? Are we going to be okay? Are my kids going to be okay? What better comfort is there to a discouraged, disenchanted people than God's covenant faithfulness? That despite the people's unfaithfulness that had launched them into 66 brutal years of captivity, God was still faithful to his covenant. The command to be strong would seem crushing if that's all he had to say. If the sermon just ended there, wouldn't it? Hey, suck it up. Rub some dirt on it. Get over it. Get back to work. I know we might recognize that as laughable, but how often do we unconsciously think about God like that? That's not what God does, is it? He brings their attention back to what? His covenant. Specifically, the Mosaic covenant. Keep in mind, Sinai was a long time ago. Haggai ministered nearly a thousand years after Moses, and a lot had happened since then, hadn't it? Why can they be strong? Because God has assured them of his covenantal presence by his spirit in their midst. For a people coming out of exile, this is God saying, I am still your God, and you are still my people. The endurance and courage that the people needed to persist in the work that God had given them was to be found, verse 5, in God's very presence. What God requires, he provides. Therefore, the people need not fear. And in verses 6 through 8, the Lord goes even further, and he supports his promises in the present by his promises for the future. We see this language of God shaking the earth, the sea, the nations, and everything so that the treasures of nations will come in. If the nations and kingdoms on earth are like an orange tree, God is going to shake the tree so that all their wealth, all their treasures fall out and pour into God's temple. That's what God was going to do with the nations. So don't worry about the temple's outward appearance, he says. God promised to act sovereignly to provide for his temple in a way that they could not. This is eschatological language. Simply meaning that it is language used to speak of last things, of Christ's second coming. How do we know that? 
We interpret the scriptures like the New Testament authors interpret the scriptures. So you remember from our time in the book of Hebrews, not that long ago, this passage in Haggai is quoted as a warning to those who were tempted to fall away and apostatize and go back to Judaism. The author of Hebrews exhorts them by telling them, don't refuse him, Christ, who is speaking. We won't read the whole passage here, but I would encourage you later this week, Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. I would encourage you to read it. Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. And in verse 26, the author of Hebrews uses Haggai 2.6 both to encourage his covenant people and to speak judgment on the nations, which he will subdue, overthrow, and plunder at Christ's second coming. And then in Hebrews 12, 28 through 29, the author writes, in light of this coming judgment, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Though the temple that Judah was building didn't measure up to Solomon's, God told them not to worry. He knows what he's doing. Haggai 2, 9 the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. The glory of the temple that lay ahead far exceeded the glory of Solomon's temple. And God is building a kingdom that won't be ruined, that won't need to be rebuilt, because it will be a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We need to remember this when we get discouraged in our evangelism. We made the observation last week that the temple under the new covenant is spiritual. It's God's people themselves who make up the living stones in the temple of God. Therefore, as we share the gospel, we are in that sense building God's temple today. Living stones are being added every day, and we have the privilege of being God's instruments in their inclusion. But notice that the same assurance that the Lord offers to the people while they were rebuilding the physical temple, verse 4, work for I am with you, it's the same assurance that Jesus gives the disciple about building the spiritual temple in the Great Commission, isn't it? Go, make disciples, baptize, teach, for I will be, what? With you, always to the very end of the age. So as you're seeking to share the gospel with your neighbors and coworkers, I know that it's often intimidating, but the same mighty God that will shake the heavens and the earth one day is the God who promises to be with us as we seek to fulfill that commission. So we can do so. We can work to build God's temple without fear. This kingdom, though it may not appear to be all that impressive right now, it is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This reality should encourage us in our evangelistic efforts. Notice how this sermon builds up he says, I will shake the heavens. I will shake the earth. I will shake the, all nations. I will fill this house with glory. And verse nine, I will give peace. It moves from what the temple is, where God's glory dwells, to what it does. It provides peace for God's people. Maybe this seems odd to you, that he goes from speaking about pouring out his judgment upon the nations with his imagery of a violent shaking, and then he promises peace? Friends, for those who do not belong to God, Christ's return will be the most fearful thing imaginable. 
to stand before God as an unholy sinner with no mediator, no one to represent you is a frightful thing. But for those who do belong to God in Christ, who have him as our mediator, him as our representative, oh, friends, what a sweet day that will be. When our master returns, he will bring peace with him. The future promise of this eternal peace to come should bring us peace and assurance today. This is why the Apostle Paul can speak so confidently in Romans 5.1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no better news to calm our anxious hearts today than the news that we are okay with God. That we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. As the Puritan Thomas Watson writes, if God be our God, he will give us peace in trouble. When there is a storm without, he can make peace within. The world can create trouble in peace. God can create peace in trouble. So in verses one through nine, we see a disenchanted people assured. And he gives them the hope that they need to endure. Verses 10 through 19, we see a defiled people blessed. A defiled people blessed. Here in this third sermon, about two months after the one we just looked at, Haggai opens by examining the priests regarding the Levitical laws about ritual purity. Pastor Garrett Kell calls this a priestly powwow. Remember that the Levitical law gave detailed instructions for how the priests were to cleanse themselves in order to make pure offering for the sins of the people so that they might remain in the promised land. Jeff promised that there would be a metal water ball. Are you a prophet, brother? No, I was kidding. <laughs> Remember, the president established in verses 11 through 13 is very simple. Defilement is contagious, but holiness is not. Defilement is contagious, but holiness is not. Holy meat set apart for sacrifice will not make holy whatever it touches. Yet a dead body, deemed unclean according to Levitical law, will contaminate that which it touches. And Haggai appropriates this truth, using it as an analogy for the people. He says of their work at the end of verse 14, what they offer there is unclean. Their disobedience to rebuild the temple when God had commanded them to make, to, uh, to, made their work impure. As one commentator puts it so well, the skeleton of the ruined temple. It was like a dead body decaying and making everything contaminated. Their disobedience to his command to rebuild the temple prompted the judgment of God. We saw that at length last week in chapter one. But notice the contrast between verse 17, I struck you, to verse 19. From this day on, I will bless you. Now that the people had responded to God in faith and had resumed their work on the temple, God comforts them with his promise to bless them. We don't have time to get into it here, but I would encourage you to go back on your own time, maybe later this week, and read Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. It's an unusually significant chapter in the Bible as it details God's conditions for his people under the Old Covenant. 
There you will see that under the old covenant, there were blessings for obedience and cure, uh, curses for disobedience. And the book of Haggai is essentially a clear outworking of Deuteronomy 28. Under the Mosaic covenant, there were blessings associated with obedience. We see that in Deuteronomy 1, or 28, 1 through 14. And curses associated with disobedience. Deuteronomy 28, 15 through the rest of the chapter. It's important that we understand that lest we try to import promises of material prosperity into the new covenant today. What we see in verses 10 through 19 is that God is not merely concerned with a physical temple. He wants holy laborers. He doesn't just want them to work. He wants them holy in their work. And in the same way that an unhealthy person can pass on a virus by what they touch, so too does an unholy person contaminate their work. So friend, if, if you're here today and this language, if, you're, if you don't understand yourself to be a Christian and this language of cleanliness, uncleanliness, holiness, unholiness seems strange to you, let me speak to you for just a moment. We recognize, as I'm sure that you do also, the world around us is not as it should be. All is not right in the world. There is death, disease, destruction. It is clear that the world is full of corruption. But it's important for you to know that it was not always this way. God spoke a good creation into existence. And it was man's rebellion against the holy God that brought sin and death into the world. And the rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3 to Revelation, is answering the question, how can unholy sinners be reconciled to a holy God? How can that which is unholy have peace and dwell among the holy? The answer is not found in ourselves. You and I can do nothing to cleanse ourselves of our sin. This is the difference between the covenant of Moses and the covenant of grace. The book of Hebrews says that even the sacrifices of the Old Testament could not cleanse the conscience. We need a greater righteousness that comes from outside of us. And this is what God has provided to us in Christ, his only son, who came to earth as a man, born under the law, who fulfilled every requirement of the law. And he demonstrated his authority over sickness and death during his earthly ministry. He was put to death himself on a cross as a substitute and sacrifice for sins. He was buried, raised from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he will one day return to judge the living and the dead. Friends, it is only by trusting in him that we can be forgiven of our sins and receive the righteousness and holiness, cleanliness required to stand before our holy God on that day of judgment. If that's not true of you today, please come talk to me or one of the elders after service. We would be thrilled to speak to you. What kind of implications might Haggai's third sermon, verses 10 through 19, have for our church today? The principle that we see is that God still cares about the holiness of his workers. This, of course, does not mean that we should ever expect for the church to be filled with people who never sin. In that case, there would be no churches. But we should expect our churches to be filled with sinners who repent. That's, that's a big theme in Haggai that we've already seen in chapter one. We are to take our own sin seriously and we are to take seriously the sins of our fellow church members. God very clearly sets himself against unrepentant sin in the scriptures. 
The reality that God cares about the holiness of the people shouldn't cause us to grow discouraged at all. After all, he is the one who has set us free from our bondage to sin in Christ. This should motivate us, give us confidence to do the hard work of putting our sin to death in order that we might walk more faithfully in the spirit. He empowers us to do that work. Not only that, but we wrap our arms around each other so that we might help each other persevere and hope. We lend each other our strength and bear the burdens of the weak. This isn't some kind of idealistic picture of the church either. According to the Bible, this is what we should expect of everyday, normal Christianity to look like in our church. God has given us the gift of one another to build each other up that we might persevere and finish well. Secondly, we should embrace the Lord's discipline. We shouldn't chafe against it. Though we are strongly of the conviction that Christ will lose none that the Father gives him. Meaning one cannot lose their salvation by any means. The Lord, being the kind Father that he is, disciplines his children. So while our our union with Christ can never be broken, unrepentant sin absolutely can hinder our fellowship with him. There are plenty of places that we could look in the scripture to see this, but consider just one example with me in 1 Peter 3, 7. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Peter 3, 7. Peter says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And get this. He says, So that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter says that the way that husbands treat their wives can affect their fellowship with the Lord. Our prayers can be hindered. There's a kind of prayer that is acceptable to God and clearly the prayers of harsh and unloving husbands are not it. So just consider whether your subjective sense of distance from the Lord could be due to unrepentant sin in your life. It could be. It could not be. It could just be a particularly difficult season. But perhaps there is something there that you have not given appropriate attention to. We need to be careful not to fool ourselves into thinking that God approves of our sin. God wants his labors to be holy in their work. And he promises to bless those who repent. So in verses 10 through 19, we see a defiled people blessed. Lastly, in verses 20 through 23, we see a Davidic people assured, preserved, a Davidic people preserved. Haggai's final sermon is to and about Judah's governor, Zerubbabel. Verse 21, he says, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and the riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. We've seen examples of signet rings elsewhere in the Bible. Perhaps your mind goes to the story of Joseph in Genesis 41 when he's given Pharaoh's signet ring. A signet ring was a stamp of authority, of approval, And so when Joseph wore the signet ring of Pharaoh, he carried Pharaoh's authority. And so whoever possesses this divine signet ring then serves as king, the earthly representative of Yahweh. 
Remember, Judah does not currently have a king. They just came out of exile. Back in Jeremiah 22, 24, we actually see that the signet ring was ripped off of Jehoiakim's, he's Zerubbabel's grandfather, it was ripped off of Jehoiakim's hand. In light of this, it's reasonable to wonder whether the people's messianic hopes were up in the air. Where will this Messiah come from? Where will the promised seed, crush the head of the serpent, come from? Now in Haggai's final sermon, we see Yahweh's signet ring placed on the hand of this descendant of David, Zerubbabel. In doing so, the Lord is restoring his promise to David. There will come another who will reign on the throne of David. And what's interesting, of course, is that this promise is actually not directly to Zerubbabel, but through him. Zerubbabel never actually serves as king. There's no throne for him to sit on, no crown for him to wear, no empire for him to rule. The promise lives past him. And in the genealogies of Jesus in the Gospels, we see that this Messiah was a son of Zerubbabel. As one commentator writes, in Zerubbabel, the Lord's eschatological, remember last things, Davidic purposes are renewed and reinvigorated and stamped with the supreme validation, the word of the Lord of hosts. The Davidic king was still to come to hold down the fort. That's what he was saying. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you've seen what a helpful and timelessly relevant book Haggai truly is. In our everyday lives, it can become so easy to become disenchanted and disillusioned just as the people did. We can lose our focus on what truly matters and find ourselves with other earthly priorities on the throne of our hearts. Haggai is a helpful course correction for us to consider our ways, to examine in what ways have I taken my eye off the proverbial ball? In what ways have I neglected God's presence in my own life in the care of his household? How have I in some ways forgotten the faithfulness of God through the ages and in my own life? What else am I turning to for hope and endurance? Friends, meditating on this book of Haggai in many ways will do spiritual surgery on our hearts. For a people that earnestly desires to finish well and persevere in the Christian life, the Lord has much to offer us in this book. What a joy and a challenge it's been to dig into with you these past two weeks. Hope for endurance is found in God himself, not our earthly circumstances. It struck me this week as I was preparing this message, how many themes in Haggai are found in this one verse of the beloved hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. We see sin, peace, God's presence, strength, hope, blessing, it's all there. I don't think there's any better way to close our time in this book than by reading it together and meditating on how this is true, not just generally, but for me, for us. Covenant Baptist Church says, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. Let's pray.